We get it. You're busy. You don't have time to waste on the mainstream media. That's why Salem News Channel is here. We have hosts worth watching, actually discussing the topics that matter. Andrew Wilkow, Dinesh D'Souza, Brandon Tatum, and more. Open debate and free speech you won't find anywhere else. We're not like the other guys. We're Salem News Channel. Watch anytime on any screen for free 24-7 at snc.tv. And on local now, channel 525. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. It is perhaps just a generation or so ago that we argued in apologetics debates particularly that God said, hath God said. Well, today the debate is simply that God, meaning does he even exist? Nietzsche asserted a century ago that God was dead, suggesting at least at the minimum that at one time God did exist. But today we debate his very existence ever. A new book helps you address a lot of these questions, perhaps questions you yourself have struggled with, certainly questions that maybe you struggle with in answering for uh, friends as you share your faith. The book is called simply, Does God Exist? And 51 Other Compelling Questions About God and the Bible. Its author is a lead pastor from Life Fellowship Church outside of Charlotte, North Carolina, and the founder and host of the video ministry, The One Minute Apologist, Pastor Bobby Conway. Pastor Conway, great to have you on the program. Hey, it's good to be with you, buddy. Well, I guess these days, particularly with what we see going on in the world around us, whether we talk about politics or the spate of violence in particular, and a lot of it taking place in God's name or in Allah's name, and a lot of people get confused between the two, a lot of Christians really struggle to try to come up with these answers that will help satisfy uh, friends as they or co-workers as they share their faith. And in looking at your new book, I mean, it certainly isn't a 500-page tome, uh, you could almost practically memorize the entire book, and toward that degree, I just wonder if that was your intent. Well, what I did want to do is help uh, my readers to gain some confidence around curious questions that they may have or people whom they're engaging conversations with might have. And so what I did, basically, is I've got almost a thousand videos on our One Minute Apologist YouTube uh, ministry site where I interview world-leading philosophers and apologists, and then I do a lot of the questions myself. And I just thought to take, you know, 50 or so of those type of questions that I do in video format and then put them in written format. So I wrote that book to give people a tool of some of the questions that people are asking today. And what I like about the book, Pastor, is it is literally a book that you could memorize. I mean, you you could almost spend a few minutes with this every day and commit a lot of the answers uh, to memory. There, there's some give and take in here, questions to consider, uh, memory verses that, uh, that tie into uh, each of the questions, along with uh, information concerning the links to the accompanied YouTube videos that you've produced that I think really can help equip Christians for, as, as Paul told us, to be ready to give an answer for the hope that lies within. Yes, and I also think that people want information, especially in this age, that is digestible, and I think that there is a place for uh, the tome, and I'm all about that. I read those myself. I think that it's good, though, for people to have a tool, and being a pastor, I have to be a pragmatician, uh, and I think that this is something that can serve as a tool whereby people can get together in small groups or in coffee shops 
uh, or they can just have it as a resource manual to look up questions either about theology or worldview or sexual issues or some of the different things that we're facing right before us right now. Uh, one of the things that I like about your approach to this, so when I first picked up the book, I thought, well, we're going to expect to find some basic questions in there, sort of the questions of time and memoriam, does God exist, what about the virgin birth, uh, uh, is Jesus equal to, to God, things of this sort that are kind of basic Christian theology. But you have not shied away from dealing with any of the contemporary questions, so to speak, of our day either. For example, I, I first read it and thought, did I read that right? Will there be sex in heaven? Uh, you, you don't shy away, shy away from any of these topics, do you? Well, I mean, the reality is, is people have these questions, and I think in the Church we need to say, hey, look, if we're sincerely striving to learn, it's okay to ask questions. Uh, and will there be sex in question? I mean, that's not uh, out of reason to ask that kind of question. Uh, will I still be married in question uh, in heaven? I mean, these are questions that, that people thought about. In fact, that Jesus was opposed uh, such questions. A question, and we learn that you know what we're going to be, uh, you know, like the angels in heaven, neither given in marriage. So there's going to be a marriage on earth till death do us part. So there's not going to be sex in heaven. But I think that that's not anything for us to dread. It's hard to imagine as adults a world where there cannot be intimacy uh, between a person that we love. But we can know in heaven that the purpose of sex here on earth is for mutual pleasure and procreation, and our ultimate pleasure will be found in God, and there will be no procreative reasons for us to have sex in heaven. What's good, too, I think, about your approach to the book, Pastor, is that in addition to helping tackle questions that uh, we could run into day by day as we share our faith with others, there are also some very timely topics that, quite frankly, a lot of Christians struggle with themselves. They don't quite understand the answers, and we live in a society that not only promotes this sense of, of certainly uh, uh, theological pluralism, but also from the standpoint of wanting to be, quote-unquote, tolerant, uh, and yet we say, gee, how, how do I come about giving an articulate response to some of the more controversial topics. I mean, take, for example, the matter of marijuana use. Now, here in California, we're going to head to the ballot in November, not only decide who the next president will be, U.S. Senator from California, but also decide whether or not we should follow in the footsteps of Colorado and legalize recreational use of marijuana. This is one of the topics that you've chosen to deal with. I discern between medical marijuana and uh, recreational use of marijuana. I grew up in California myself, and I've been clean since October 9, 1994. I got clean at my first semester at Chico State, of all places. And uh, I don't know if it's still the party school it was back in the in the 90s. But it has a reputation. There, yes, it does. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought quite the place to go and get sober. I went to an AA meeting October 9, 1994. And I've been clean ever since. And so I smoked a lot of dope myself in California, so I'm not throwing uh, stones at those who, uh, who do. But I will say that I know back then a good hit of some green butt could get a high going. And with the THC levels where they are today, I just don't see how we can uh, maintain, uh, you know, temple care. The Bible talks about, you know, we're to honor our bodies, we're to take care of our temple, it kills brain cells. I think from a standpoint of medical use, I can see a real avenue for that. Suppose we were to wake up and read in a newspaper and we'd never heard about marijuana before, and we didn't have the negative connotations, and we saw scientists have found a leaf that can help those with cancer patients who are cancer patients to digest their food 
to help them to gain weight and to assuage them in the midst of their pain. I don't think we'd think anything of it because people use uh, many medications that are far worse right now than marijuana. So I can say I could see it being okay there, but just recreationally, I think that it's hard to make that case. If you've just joined our conversation, visiting tonight with the lead pastor from Life Fellowship Church outside of Charlotte, North Carolina, they offer the new book called Does God Exist? This and 51 other compelling questions about God and the Bible. It is a bite size, which is what I like about this. Um, a lot of people get put off. Questions arise, they don't know how to answer them, and they're too intimidated to uh, go out and buy a 500-page uh, tome on the topic. And so as a result, they just sort of maintain their sense of ignorance. But it's hard to be effective when it comes to witnessing today and not be ready to give an answer for the hope that lies within, as Paul said. Not be uh, prepared to engage in, in thoughtful reasoned give and take, and to be able to take a stand. And most importantly, not only be educated and equipped ourselves, but then share that knowledge with others as we share our faith. And that's a long way toward what this book uh, is is focused on doing. Newly published by Harvest House, by the way. We'll take a brief time out, come back to more of the conversation, deal with a few other hot topics of the day as our visit with Pastor Bobby Conway, author of Does God Exist? continues here on Life. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Helping you answer the big questions of the day, uh, perhaps for yourself, certainly for others as you share your faith, having a sense of uh, uh, solid discipleship where we are learned a bit, uh, we are trained, so to speak, within the basics of apologetics is, is kind of... Uh, unfortunately, passing away, meaning that fewer and fewer churches um, underscore the importance of this. And yet, I think really to be an effective witness in sharing our faith and to also have a good sense of grounding in our own relationship with Christ, it's important that we have some of these fundamental answers, a fundamental understanding of our faith. And uh, the new book, Does God Exist?, and 51 Other Compelling Questions About God and the Bible goes a long way toward, in a very uh, direct fashion, answer many of those questions. Its author is our guest today, Bobby Conway. He is also the lead pastor of Life Fellowship Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. He's also authored other books and uh, is the uh, founder and host, by the way, of the rapidly growing video ministry, The One Minute Apologist, which is, I guess, Bobby, if you just do a, um, a search in YouTube, all of the link will come up? Absolutely, yeah. Just type in One Minute Apologist. We have a channel in YouTube, or they can go to the oneminuteapologist.com and they can learn more about the videos there. And this is really, I mean, I, I think of not just... Uh, new believers, but uh, good refresher course for some of us that have been in faith for a lot of years, as well as an opportunity to get studied with a biblical perspective on some of the so-called hot topics of the day, which I know a lot of believers struggle with. I mean, for example, this issue of uh, transvestitism or a sex change. Uh, has been a lot in the news lately, particularly with uh, uh, Bruce Jenner capturing a lot of headlines. And I know that when the topic comes up, other than uh, sharing a sense of uh, disbelief or uh, uh, frustration with the topic, many, many Christians, I think, are just frustrated. They don't know how to answer. They don't know how to respond when this debate or this topic is approached. It's too bad that uh, the church has a reputation 
uh, for being bombastic at times. By and large, uh, the Christians that I come in contact are wonderful people, uh, humble people, but a lot of times they're not ready to engage in conversation uh, with people. Those who would say apologetics uh, isn't important uh, obviously uh, haven't been out sharing uh, with non-believers or engaging them with questions about their faith, because those questions will come up. And in, in particular, this one on sex change, uh, this is a huge issue in our culture right now. And I do think that we should be looking for ways to exhibit compassion. I mean, I can't imagine what it would be like to feel trapped uh, with another gender inside of my body. Uh, at the same token, I think we can show a compassion. You know, I can't, you know, imagine what that would be like. I'm not trying to throw stones at you here. I'm just trying to be faithful to the way that I believe that God created us. And I believe that uh, the chromosomal structure cannot be changed through a sex change. Uh, our chromosomal structure reveals whether we're male or female. Now, there is an intersex condition that some would have where maybe they might have some, you know, partial male and partial female body parts, and I can understand the situation like that where they might seek counsel and get some wisdom on how to be unified so they don't, so that individual doesn't feel like they're half male, half female. That makes sense. But I do think biblically we should realize that uh, sex is not something that we can just uh, play with. It's we're designed by God with a certain gender. The other thing that I think believers should appreciate from a book like this is not only equipping them in terms of a, a better, more articulate, articulate uh, apologetic approach to many of the hot topics of the day from a biblical perspective, but also some of the topics that kind of swirl within the church that oftentimes uh, we need to gain a deeper, more foundational understanding on. Uh, it is probably unlikely for the most part that the average non-believer is going to want to engage you in questions about the Trinity, but we know that uh, modalism or uh, Trinitarianism within the church, there are corners where this is hotly contested and debated, and from time to time, I think at least from a good biblical foundation, from a discipleship standpoint, it's important that believers understand what the Bible actually has to say on topics that are very relevant to the Christian's faith, particularly in issues such as the Trinity. Sure, that's a good point, Craig, where we see that God is one in essence and three in person, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I think that there's a lot of confusion today, and I think that in my last book I wrote called Doubting Toward Faith, I wrestled with some of my own doubts and wrote about some of my own struggle with it and shared how, you know, we're living in a melting pot culture of belief. We're like a nation without a mission statement. We're not what we once were. We're not sure what we're becoming, but in between, in this tweener space, it's great. And there's lots of questions, and we're experiencing what Jennifer Heck talked about, this idea of cosmopolitan doubt, where my belief's bumping up against somebody else's belief, and we're wondering, how can I know what I believe is really true? And I think that we need to help people to deal with these questions and with their doubts, and a lot of people are intimidated to share their doubts, because they're going to feel like they're an immature believer if they do. And I want to say, as a pastor and as an apologist, that in the absence of certainty, there's always going to be room for doubt. The question is, which worldview closes the doubt gap the best? And me, as a Christian pastor, I can struggle with doubts, but I believe when I look at the case for the resurrection of Jesus, and when I think about our worldview compared to other worldview options, I believe Christianity is uh, the greatest worldview standing and offers the greatest amount of evidence for us. Um. 
Do we also have to uh, concede that there are some topics for which there's just not real clear direction within Scripture uh, that sort of uh, now we see uh, through a glass darkly uh, approach that, you know, there are certain mysteries, so to speak, that we do not fully comprehend and give believers a sense of relief that that's okay? I think so. I think it makes us, uh, look, if somebody gets discipled, they're a brand new Christian, and then they go, okay, I've been discipled, I've had my five hours of training, uh, they're often ultra-dogmatic. They go out and they feel like they've, they've read their Left Behind series, and they know how God's going to wrap the world up. And <laughs> Look, the reality is, is if we're going to go in and out of some of these doctrinal positions on age of the earth, or the timing of Jesus' return, or which translation to use, or whether or not one of the Calvinists are Arminian, and I think we need to give people some real freedom to think, because sometimes we can give people such a tight doctrinal list that then if they're just thinking because they read another book, not trying to disobey God, just wrestling with the argument, they can feel like they're doing something wrong, and the reality is, is they're just thinking. And I think that's when we get back to, we need to love God with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind, love our neighbors ourselves. As Christians, our faith is in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We're keeping our faith there, and then we live it with a lot of flexibility, and we give each other a lot of grace, because we're splintering the Church to death in the name of our pet particularities, and I think we need to loosen up a little bit. And I think that's a key point that you make, because there's also this perspective that says, listen, um, there are some doctrines, so to speak, that are going to constantly be open for debate. I mean, you know, upon baptism, should we sprinkle or should we dunk? I don't know. I mean, I, I think there's evidence to show, certainly from Christ's experience with it, that uh, the dunking is the way to go. That said, it certainly doesn't classify as a damnable doctrine, meaning that if you don't embrace it or believe it certain ways, uh, that, that you're going to be outside the confines of, 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 of so-called normative or, or um, historical Christianity. But there's also also this notion that we can sometimes get so caught up in the minutia of some of these completely unwinnable debates that we we end up seeing our relationship with the very Christ himself suffer, don't we? I just would love to see the church at large really grasp what you're saying right there, because if we could just get the beauty and the joy of learning. Yes, there's a corpus of theology that we're to believe, but the reality is, is we've got over 40,000 denominations. Uh, you know, uh, you can pit many of these great theologians that are our heroes, and they contradict each other on some of these viewpoints as well. That doesn't mean that undercuts our belief ultimately in the authority of Scripture. What it means is people are finite. And yes, there's one interpretation from God's perspective, but as humans, I believe, myself included, none of us walk around as perfect interpreters of Scripture. So that should create some humility in us that, you know what, we're going to do our best to show ourselves as workmen who are approved of studying the Word of God, but we're going to be humble with the way that we handle that with others as well. And in doing so, of course, being prepared to give an answer, to not only deepen your own relationship with Christ and understanding of your own faith, but then to be more effective communicator at discipling believers that you've won to Christ, and certainly hope that's part of uh, your your life experience, and then, too, to be prepared to share your faith with others. This book goes a long way in a very easy fashion. It answers the question, does God exist? That and 51 other compelling questions about God, the Bible, and quite frankly, life in general, wrestling with a lot of the questions, contemporary ones that we struggle with to 
this very day. Bobby Conway is the author of the new book, lead pastor of Life Fellowship Church, located just outside of Charlotte, North Carolina, graduate of Dallas Theological Seminary, great job on the book, newly published, by the way, by our friends at Harvest House and available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area, as well as through some of the usual suspects, Amazon.com. You can also get it through Pastor Conway's website, Bobby Conway, spell it just the way it sounds, Bobby Conway Online. Dot com. That's bobbyconwayonline.com. And, you know, if you're looking for some quick, easy to nibble on and digest uh, and memorize content, not only the book, but also uh, we mentioned about his YouTube channel uh, that provides, what did you say, Bobby, over a 1,000 videos? Well, we're working close to a 1,000. We've got about 900 right now, so almost a 1,000 different videos. And these are all called the one-minute apologist that deals with just short, bite-sized chunks of information on a whole variety of topics that that very much mimic uh, what the book does. So you can check that out on YouTube by simply uh, doing a a Google search. Go to YouTube and look for the One Minute Apologist. Again, the book, Does God Exist? And 51 Other Compelling Questions About God and the Bible, newly published by Harvest House. Our thanks to Pastor Bobby Conway for being with us tonight here on this edition of Lifeline. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. When you think about it, I think most of us that are married can agree that we tend to focus on the sense of happiness and satisfaction out of our marriage relationships and not necessarily looking at marriage from the viewpoint of the purpose of marriage based on the outcome of a God-centered kingdom marriage. Everyone no doubt agrees that a good marriage is more pleasant and beneficial than an unhappy one, but equally important, a good marriage is supposed to be a model of the heavenly union that God created. Joining us today on the program is the founder and president of the Urban Alternative. He's senior pastor at Oak Cliff Bible Fellowship in Dallas and speaker on the nationally syndicated program, The Alternative. Great to have with us today on the program, Dr. Tony Evans. And as always, Pastor, a privilege to have you on the show. I'm delighted to be with you. Thank you for having me. Let's talk about this new book that you've written, Kingdom Marriage, Connecting God's Purpose with Your Pleasure. It it strikes me as unique in that, unlike many of the books out there on the topic of marriage, you take us all the way back. In fact, you extrapolate examples of how each spouse, man and woman, um, should behave and treat each other based on that first union that we see, that union model between Adam and Eve. Tell us more about that. Often and unfortunately, marriages are not tied to God's purpose. They're just tied to uh, the pleasure that people want to get out of it, and there's nothing wrong with that. But when God created the first marriage, the first couple, brought the first two singles together, it was to fulfill a divine purpose, in fact, three purposes. Uh, He said, we're going to make man male and female. And first purpose would be that they would be a reflection of who we are. Um, made in our image. An image is a mirror. So we want to mirror in the physical realm what we are like in the invisible spiritual realm. Well, God is one God composed of three co-equal persons who are one in essence and yet distinct in personhood. The Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, but they make up one family or one Godhead. So what God wanted to do was mirror that in the creation of mankind. And in fact, when God 
relates to history, one member proceeds from the other. The Father sends the Son, the Son sends the Holy Spirit. So that's why uh, Adam came from Eve and a baby comes from, uh, 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 excuse me, Eve came from Adam and a baby comes from Eve because th- that's how history proceeds, like God proceeds into history. So God is, God is looking for a mirror. So when you detach God from what marriage is, why marriage is, and how marriage works, the mirror becomes distorted. The second reason was for not only reflection, but for replication. Be fruitful and multiply. But multiply what? Not just multiply people, multiply images. God wants mirrors to produce new mirrors. And so the idea of childbearing is to create mirrors that are a reflection of the parents who are a reflection of God. Then the third reason is for ruling and let them rule. So men and women in the marriage and the development of families were to exercise dominion over what God created. So the reason why Satan wants to destroy marriage is not just because he wants two unhappy people. He wants to destroy God's purpose of dominion or ruling so that we wind up being ruled by him than ruling over the creation God has placed under our authority. You know, Pastor Evans, one of the complaints that we often hear from women who are frustrated in their marriage relationship, they'll say things like, well, you know, I got into this marriage and I understand from a biblical perspective that my husband is supposed to be the head of the family, but my husband shows no sense of responsibility whatsoever. He doesn't do a good job at work. Uh, he, he seems to not necessarily take charge when it comes to working with me and raising our children, things of this sort. And I'm struck by the fact that inside of the new book, Kingdom Marriage, Connecting God's Purpose with Your Pleasure, very early on, you extrapolate a very important lesson for men. And that is the notion that even before God gave Adam Eve, he gave Adam responsibility. Expand upon that, would you please? Absolutely, because if a man is not willing to be responsible under God, then he can't be properly responsible for the one God places under him. Mm. And so it would be the responsibility of the man and the accountability of the man to own responsibility under God. And that, therefore, God gave him a job, God gave him a home, the Garden of Eden, God gave him his commandments, and he gave him responsibility to name all the animals. He was to be a successful single before he could be a responsible husband. And uh, unfortunately today, far too many women are marrying men who have not owned that responsibility under God. In fact, the biblical definition of a man is responsibility under God. Exodus chapter 34, verses 23 and 24, God calls all the men of Israel to meet with him and to to give them instruction on how they were to to function as men and then he says then i'll send you back to your family because the family would be in jeopardy if the men failed and so god always starts with the man that's why in the garden god said adam where are you not adam and eve where are y'all (laughs) I guess this can also be an important lesson for women to understand that, you know, there's often this sense we hear it said all the time that a woman will marry a man. She recognizes he has some shortcomings and faults, but thinks that once I marry him, I'll get him fixed. And in fact, as you're suggesting here, women should be watching very carefully as to the kind of man that they think might make a good husband, because their sense of responsibility, particularly in their relationship to God in single life, is oftentimes a harbinger or an indicator of what they're going to be marrying into, isn't it? Well, yes, certainly, and two things need to happen. First of all, you need to answer the question, if this man never changes, am I willing to live with him as he is for the rest of his life? Because what you don't want to do is you, you don't want to project a change that may never happen. Secondly of all, 
he should have to pass the test of another man who is the kind of man that you respect and honor so that there's other eyes. It should be the father of the of the woman, but if it's not, some mature Christian man, so he's got to pass the test of another man and, and not just the emotional test of the woman who's in love with the man. A sense of uh, servanthood here is important. We certainly see that modeled throughout Scripture in relationship to uh, our relationship to God and God's relationship to us. We also see it demonstrated when it comes to the design for a marriage relationship. And oftentimes men are very easy to sort of default back to the, well, God set me up as the head of the family here, and so my wife must be subservient to me. But yet in the pages of Kingdom Marriage, you suggest that this sense of headship applies to both husband and wife. What do you mean by that? Well, first of all, we, we, we have to understand that the First uh, Corinthians 11.3, God is over Christ. It says Christ is over every man, a man is over a woman. Everybody comes under the authority of somebody else. So just as the husband claims headship over the wife, Christ claims headship over the husband. And Christ's headship over the husband trumps the husband's headship over the wife, because you are obligated to the one at the top of this pyramid. And of course, Christ and God are perfect. But a man has a head. So if you're expecting your wife to submit to you, then she should see what it looks like when you submit to Christ. And if you're not submitting to Christ, then you shouldn't be shocked that you're having trouble getting her to submit to you because all she's reflecting is your lack of submission. So it is critical that men come under authority if they expect to be in authority. It's always struck me as interesting as uh, men are often uh, uh, quick to remind women that they should uh, they should uh, uh, be obedient to their husbands, and yet the the continuation of that passage says, "In husbands, you should love your wives as Christ loved the church." And of course, if we look at that model, we realize well. Christ so loved the church that while we were yet in our sins and uh, not walking in fellowship with him, that he, in fact, gave his life for the church. That certainly resets that whole, that whole notion of the relationship then between men and women, doesn't it? Well, absolutely. It's, uh, it, it means that you must become your wife's savior, and the last time I saw a savior, he was on a cross. Mm-hmm. So if you're not willing to sacrifice at all, then you're not really to, willing, ready and willing to love like Christ loved. If you're just joining our conversation, a visit today with Dr. Tony Evans. Of course, you recognize the voice. He is speaker on The Alternative with Dr. Tony Evans, nationally syndicated on some 1,000 radio stations across the country. He is also senior pastor of Oak Cliff Bible Fellowship in Dallas and the author of a new book called Kingdom Marriage, Connecting God's Purpose with Your Pleasure, newly published by Focus on the Family Books. We'll take a brief time out, come back to more of our conversation as our visit with Dr. Tony Evans continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to Lifeline on this edition. We are privileged to have join us on the program, Dr. Tony Evans. Of course, Dr. Evans is senior pastor at Oak Cliff Bible Fellowship in Dallas, speaker on the nationally syndicated The Alternative with Dr. Tony Evans, and the author of a new book, 
Kingdom Marriage, Connecting God's Purpose with Your Pleasure. One of the things that you talk about in the book, Dr. Evans, as we mentioned before the break, is the sense of of learning to submit ourselves to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And I guess that's a really key component, because if we expect to be able to live out the marriage union in the fashion in which God called it to be, way back there in the Garden of Eden, we really need to understand what submission to God or Jesus' Lordship really means, don't we? Absolutely. It means what he says goes. Uh, why you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say, the Lord says. So that means I'm sub- I am committed to obeying him, and my decisions will reflect his decisions. So that means I want to know what he thinks about the things related to my life, my world, my family, my finances, and I bring his thinking to the table to bear when I deal with my responsibilities as a husband and a father. When I ignore that or don't care to learn about that, then what I'm saying is I'm not obligated to find out what my head thinks, even though I'm demanding that my wife and children find out what <laughs> what uh, what I think. And so it becomes a conflict, and it, and what it does is creates division. And once you have division, you've invited God out of the relationship. See, God can only function in unity. He cannot, he cannot be at home where there's disunity. So Satan creates disunity because we are out of alignment in order to keep God at bay, leading to ongoing conflicts in the, in the home. Let's talk about some of these um, examples of division or disunity within the marriage relationship. Uh, One thought that came to mind as I was reading your book in preparation for our conversation today, and again, for folks just tuning in, we're visiting with Dr. Tony Evans. He's got a new book out called Kingdom Marriage, Connecting God's Purpose with Your Pleasure. And Dr. Evans, a couple of weeks ago, a good friend of mine got up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom, stumbled, and busted his shin up against an exercise bike in the bedroom, and this has turned into a major ordeal that what seemed to be at first just a little scrape eventually got infected. Now it's becoming a wound that won't heal, and there's been multiple visits to the doctor's office and prescription of antibiotics and so forth, and it's, it's still an ordeal that he's dealing with. And I'm struck in that example by uh, one of the sections of the book where you talk about the comparison between physical wounds and emotional wounds and how even in that case, something that starts out to be basic or simple can grow into a festering open wound that can have really severe um, implications for challenges or problems in a marriage relationship. Tell us more about that. Well, absolutely. Um, As you said, in the physical realm, wounds that may be simple once becomes infected can become very complicated and very damaging to our physical body. So the scars that we carry by things we say, attitudes we have, uh, actions we take, can uh, start off maybe in our minds small, but when it gets infected, uh, it, it produces devastations in the relationship. That's why when there is a wound, it needs to be bandaged, and uh, you you got to put some ointment on it pretty quickly so that infection doesn't get in it. That's why the Lord doesn't want us to go to bed angry before He wants us to deal with it before the sun goes down, because time will bring about infection when wounds are unaddressed. And so what we want to do is to make sure that we are caring for our mates, caring for our marriages, and doing it on a regular basis so that it's not allowed to uh, 
uh, deteriorate. Many couples go days, months, and then years without having addressed some things in their relationships that could have been solved easier earlier if they took it more seriously. So uh, it, take, it, it means prioritizing the well-being of the relationship as quickly as possible. And a lot of this also tends to snowball, as you're suggesting, and then that sense of, of being wounded turns into anger, bitterness, resentment, ultimately unforgiveness, and that can become a major roadblock in the success of any marriage relationship. But what do you say to the person listening right now who says, well, Dr. Evans, here's what you don't understand. I, I, I have a spouse that has hurt me and wounded me, and he or she has never taken the time to apologize and I'm just so hurt and upset about all of this. How can I possibly forgive an unrepentant spouse? Well, there are, there are two kinds of forgiveness. First of all, there is, um, there is individual forgiveness where I release a person from a, a wrong done to me, even though they've not asked uh, for forgiveness. Uh, one time I was, uh, a guy ran into my car and, uh, and and then ran off and then uh, drove off. So here I've, I'm, I'm going around with a dent that I didn't create. And every time I look at that dent, uh, I'm reminded, I'm, I'm upset about what that man did who did not apologize and did not seek to right the wrong. But what that dent was doing, it was controlling me and controlling my emotions and controlling my feelings. So I had to release that person even though they 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 hadn't apologized so that I wouldn't have to live with the debt, and that was a decision of my will. But what what that didn't mean was that I was reconciled with that person because sometimes people put those two together and those are two two they related but they're two distinct acts. On the other hand, there's transactional forgiveness where a person uh, I forgive a person and they have repented, which opens the door for reconciliation. So what this person is saying is there's there's individual uh, I'm having trouble forgiving them because there's no transaction. They haven't asked for forgiveness. But what I would recommend a person to do is to sit down with their spouse and say, "What? You hurt me by doing A, B, and C whenever it was done." I'm still carrying the pain of that wound. I just want to let you know that I'm going to release you from that so that I don't walk around with a dent in my soul. But mm. I also want to let you know we can never fully be reconciled and have a meaningful, dynamic, growing relationship until you're willing to address the sin and infraction against me. That way you've defined forgiveness properly, but you've also clarified what it takes for a reconciliation to occur. And there really needs to be then some sense of surrendering from both sides, doesn't there, in, in the sense that the wounded or the, the bruised spouse needs to surrender some of that anger and resentment that is a result of, of the infraction, and the individual who created the wound in the first place can, has to kind of surrender some of that ego that perhaps stands in the way from the ability to say, you know what, I recognize I hurt you, and I'm sorry. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, the, the, the person who committed the sin needs to repent, and repentance, repentance is not just a word, it's a turning. So they should see actions, fruit, that demonstrates you really mean it, you really meant what you said by things you do that are different, that they can see, touch, taste, smell, and hear. 
We're obviously, Dr. Evans, in this short period of time, not going to be able to do much more than just kind of hit some of the highlights of uh, all of the wealth of insights that you offer inside the pages of Kingdom Marriage, Connecting God's Purpose with Your Pleasure. But before we leave you, I'd like to have you perhaps spend a moment and talk about a concept that you discuss at length in the book, and that is this notion of filling your spouse's love account. What exactly is that, and what are the benefits? Well, I, I, you know, when I get to couples, I, I tell the man to do four things, and I tell the woman to do one thing. I tell the man, number one, every day express something of value, something small of value that lets your wife know she matters, like a, 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 an unexpected phone call, a non-sexual hug, a note left in a inconspicuous place, a um, cupping her hand, something small but done regularly because men are tourists for being inconsistent that lets her know you are on my mind. Secondly of all, to pray with her daily. Uh, and I, uh, when I say daily, I mean regularly because I know you won't hit it every day. But, but let her know that God is a part of this relationship and you're going to bring your relationship, your marriage, your family before God on a regular basis. Thirdly, give her one hour a week where she can vent, up to one hour. She can't take more than that, but one hour so that nothing is allowed to be built up. That means you don't get to be nagged, but she doesn't have to hold it in for weeks and months because she has this freedom where you're undistracted, no football games, baseball games, talking about golf anything else you she she can zero in on your eyes and she can share if you if she's doing this every week well she won't need the whole hour after a while because then it won't have accumulated and then uh fourthly uh make sure you are dating her and by dating her i don't mean asking her what do you want to do today i mean you you doing things that are fun for both of you you can't discuss any problems on a date that's strictly for fun and you do it on a regular basis given you know the realities of your life then I ask the woman to do one thing, make a big deal about his four things if he does them. Just celebrate the fact that he's showing you attention, praying with you, listening to you, dating you, because that will inspire him to keep doing it because he sees there's a great payoff. So everybody wins in that situation, and everybody's tank stays full, and nobody gets to run on empty and live on fumes. Some tremendous insights inside the pages of a new book by Dr. Tony Evans. It's called Kingdom Marriage, Connecting God's Purpose with Your Pleasure. Again, newly released by... Focus on the Family Publishing. You'll find it at the usual suspects, Amazon.com. You can also order the book directly online by going to Pastor Evans' website, simply TonyEvans.org. That's TonyEvans.org. Well, Dr. Evans, as always, we certainly appreciate both the time and the wealth of insights and knowledge on God's Word that you share. Thanks so much for being with us today. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to kfax.com. That's kfax.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time round, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved.